In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you ever want to learn a lesson or two about the art of the self-justifying half-truth, you don't need to look any further than the congressional testimony of one William Campbell, then President and CEO of Philip Morris, USA. In April 1994, Campbell and six other tobacco industry leaders were called before the U.S. House of Representatives to provide testimony regarding their company's role in covering up research about the dangers of smoking. And in the midst of his lengthy testimony, Campbell delivered the most subtle half-truth I have ever heard. Philip Morris research, he said, does not establish that smoking is addictive. Consider how carefully worded that sentence is. The lawyers in the room might appreciate it. First, to say that Philip Morris research does not establish that smoking is addictive is quite different from saying Philip Morris research establishes that smoking is not addictive. Did you get it? It doesn't establish that it is addictive is very different from saying that it does establish that it isn't addictive. Second, he only says that Philip Morris research doesn't establish that smoking is addictive, even if a hundred other scientific studies do. And third, the word establish is just a brilliant choice in this context, right? Philip Morris research might suggest that smoking is addictive. It might indicate or even demonstrate it, but surely you can't say that a few studies done by your company establish a scientific fact. That would be arrogance. It's not how science works, after all. Campbell works himself up, actually, into a self-righteous rage during his testimony, responding to allegations against the cigarette companies with the indignant claim, our consumers are being misled. It's more than a little ironic, given who was doing the misleading. Bill Campbell's subtlety was impressive, but of course unconvincing. Just two years later, all seven of the executives who testified that day had lost their jobs amid a perjury inquiry and a several hundred billion dollar settlement. But I want to suggest that while most of us will never find ourselves testifying before Congress on behalf of Big Tobacco, all of us are prone to that same pattern of self-justification through the telling of half-truths. That that is, in fact, a central part of the human condition all the way to our most ancient forebears. And that there's no better time than Lent to take a look at how this pattern of rationalization and self-justification works itself out in your own life. The story of half-truths begins with Adam and Eve. Actually, really, it begins with Adam, as Paul notes, um, because Eve wasn't actually around yet when God tells Adam not to eat the fruit. If you look in the bulletin at the citation for that first reading, you'll notice that it skips from Genesis 2.17 to Genesis 3.1 with a little semicolon. Um, and what happens at Genesis 2.18? Well, God creates Eve. So anyway, God creates Adam, God tells Adam not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And then God creates Eve, who apparently gets the commandment secondhand from Adam. And immediately after Eve is created, uh, the story doesn't even tell us that Adam told her not to eat the fruit, but we can assume that he did. In comes the serpent, more crafty than any other animal, the character whom our children's Bible calls the sneaky snake, and whom uh, the later tradition would understand to be the devil. The sneaky snake comes, and it speaks with all the hair-splitting logic of a tobacco company executive. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The serpent asks Eve, and Eve says, well, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, just not the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, or we will die. And the snake says, you will not die. And this is half true. God told Adam that on the day that you eat of it, you will die. But they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and on that day they do not die. The serpent isn't lying to Eve, really. And yet they do eventually die. You have to understand what God says as a kind of metaphor. On the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, then uh, death enters into the world, or you claim a fate in which you will die. But the sneaky snake is right. It's not true that if she eats the fruit, she'll die. Otherwise, the Bible would be a much shorter book than it is. <laughs> Nevertheless, the serpent's words provide Eve with enough truth to rationalize the thing she's already going to do, and she begins the process. This tree is good for food, she says, and it's a delight to the eyes, and eating it will make me wise, so why not? And so the serpent's half-truth wins. Eve and Adam eat the fruit. Like I said, Paul doesn't blame Eve. He recognizes that Adam is kind of the problem here. But his point about Adam is also because he wants to set up a parallel between the old Adam and the new Adam, between the Adam of Genesis and the Jesus of his own day. The one who was disobedient and through whom death entered the world, and the one who is obedient even unto death and through whom life enters the world. God gave humankind the law in Adam, and Adam disobeyed. God gave humankind the free gift of life in Jesus. Paul doesn't specifically name the story of the temptation of Christ, but you can hear it in the background. Just as the serpent comes to Eve in the garden, the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness. And just as the serpent speaks in half-truths, so too does the devil, saying to Jesus, Surely, if you're the Son of God, the one through whom all things in the world were made, surely you can just make these stones into bread. And he could. The man turns water into wine. He multiplies loaves and fishes. This is the sort of thing Jesus does. But Jesus says there's more to life than bread, which is even more true. The devil quotes Psalm 91. You can throw yourself off the top of the temple because they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And it's an accurate biblical quotation. But Jesus said he'd rather not put God to the test. Satan takes him up to a high mountain and says he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world if only he falls down and worships him. And Jesus doesn't deny that this is something that his tempter could do. He doesn't say, no, 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 only God can give people earthly power. We know that isn't true. He simply says it would be wrong to worship him. Everything the devil says to Jesus in this scene is true, just as everything the snake said to Eve is true, at least half true at least true enough to build our own rationalizations off of. And yet where Eve and Adam are fooled, Jesus sees right through it and denies it, and the devil goes away because it has no power other than to tempt him with half-truths. Which brings it back to all of us on this first Sunday in Lent. There are many, many different ways to observe Lent, but it is a season that's about temptation more than anything else. That's why we have a 40-day season that parallels Jesus' 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. I've heard so far for this year from people giving up alcohol and social media and novels, 
people taking on a daily devotional reading or 10 minutes of silent prayer or journaling, or simply setting an intention to slow down or do one thing at a time. I even know somebody whose publicly stated Lenten discipline is to get through an interstate move and leaving behind an old church and searching for a new job without yelling too much at everyone else in his family. And here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what it is you choose to do during Lent. It's not about denying yourself something good. It's not about punishing or afflicting yourself. It's about trying and failing and learning. I find myself rationalizing with half-truths every year, no matter what I choose. Well, yes, I've given up alcohol for Lent, but not on Sundays, which are always a feast day, by the way, when your Lenten fasts don't apply. And today is a Friday. We're thinking of the future. Today's a Friday, but it's also St. Patrick's Day. So surely the same rule about feast days applies, does it not? And I can have a beer. And indeed, I want you to know, if you're curious, that so far 80 Catholic dioceses have announced that it is in fact all right to eat corned beef this St. Patrick's Day, although it is a Friday in Lent, if anyone's coming with that particular set of baggage. Um, but at some point you may say to yourself, I know I'm fasting from gossip this year, but I only talk to this friend once a month and she'll never believe what Sue just said. I know I was giving up social media, but I'm sitting here in the dentist's chair waiting for the dentist to come in what could a little scrolling possibly do to me? I know I was supposed to journal in the morning, but I'm tired today and I was up late last night. Why don't I just take a little break? And that's fine, in a way. You're all right. It's not the end of the world. I promise Jesus is not going to hold this before you on Judgment Day and see, look, bah. but it is a rationalization, a justification, a kind of half-truth that you're telling yourself to explain what you already want to do. It's the kind of thing that the human brain is designed for, to come up with reasoning after the fact for the decisions we've already made in our hearts. Well, not literally our hearts, just further back in the brain. And if you find yourself telling these half-truths, these Lent, I want to invite you to take it as an opportunity to reflect. What, when is it that that little rationalizing voice starts up? When is it that I begin to justify things to myself? Is it when I'm tired or hungry or frustrated or bored? Is it early in the morning or late at night or in the middle of the day? When is the moment when the sneaky snake comes to me? And how do I respond? Because the point of Lent is not only to give up the things that we give up or to take on the things that we take on. It's to learn something about ourselves in and through our imperfect attempts to give them up and to take them on. It doesn't matter that much whether you successfully abstain from chocolate or manage to journal every day. What matters is what happens in you when you try and when you fail and when you try again. What matters is how you learn what it means to grow closer to one another and to God and how hard that is, knowing throughout it all that God already knows all our weaknesses and loves us all the same, and that despite our difficulty drawing near to God, God is drawing nearer to each one of us than we could ever know. Amen.